Well, many of you uh, know that I was born and raised just over the hill in the humble little town of Laramie, Wyoming. And if you've driven into Laramie, you will have seen the signs, right, like every little Wyoming town, declaring the elevation to be 7,200 feet and the population to be 30,000. Well, that population uh, sign, I can tell you, being from Laramie, is very and extremely deceitful. Laramie's 30,000 includes the students who attend the University of Wyoming and Wyoming Technical Institute, totaling about 15,000 in all. Take away those temporary residents, the faculty and staff who support them, and you are left with a relatively small, humble, Little mountain town whose population is a little closer to its elevation of 7,200. If you don't believe me, just go there in the summer and there's nobody around, right? As a matter of fact, if you took the University of Wyoming out of Laramie, you might struggle to come up with one single significant thing that comes from that little town. I'll give you just a second to think about it. No doubt, if you think Long enough, my son Tristan is in here somewhere, and his girlfriend is from Laramie, so he probably thinks there's something significant in Laramie. But, but if you think a little deeper, you might go, wow, I don't know. <laughs> Has anything good ever come out of Laramie? Well, culturally, and come election time, as far as Wyoming is concerned, Albany County, County 5, which houses Laramie, is one of the two counties that are social outcasts in the state. During elections, Laramie's population shows up blue in an ocean of red, no doubt tempting some Wyoming residents to say, nothing good comes out of Laramie. And like Jesus' disciples who had a Galilean accent that pointed to the origin of their upbringing, having a County 5 plate in Wyoming often points to someone who might be politicking on the left to say the least, a very unpopular position throughout the state. Some of you will wonder why Valerie and I have kept our Albany County license plates on our vehicles even though we have been in Cheyenne for four years. Well, I can only speak for myself. Personally, I leave mine on, so when I find myself going the wrong way on Cheyenne's one-way streets or traffic circles, that happens, people can look at my County 5 plate and have some kind of sympathy for me. However, it is more likely that when you see a county five plate doing something unwise, you might just shake your head and say something like, has anything good ever come out of Laramie? Well, friends, it is this same cultural disdain and insignificance for a humble town in Galilee of Israel that shows up on the pages of our New Testaments. And the name of that town is is Nazareth. It is familiar to our ears because we are so familiar with our New Testaments and where Jesus is from, but uh, as we'll see here in just a moment, it is not so familiar to everybody who is living in little Israel 2,000 years ago. So insignificant is this little town that when the gospel writer Mark introduces it in chapter 1 of his gospel, he says this in verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. (laughs) Nazareth is so obscure, Mark is effectively saying, Nazareth, you know, in Galilee. You know it's just north of Jerusalem up there somewhere. Kind of like how when I'm traveling back east and uh, taking some of the classes I'm taking for my doctorates, um, uh, people ask, always very kind, you know, in the south, uh, where are you from? (laughs) And so here we go, right? I, I say something like, I'm from Laramie, Wyoming. And we give that blank stare, trying to look intelligent. I have to qualify Laramie's geographic location by saying something like, it's in the southeast corner of Wyoming. And when they continue to look at me a little bit blank with that weird stare, I say, it's just north of Denver. Oh, I get it. That's what Mark is saying, (laughs) that Jesus is from Nazareth, you know, up there in Galilee. Since the 1830s, archaeologists, treasure hunters, and scholars have come to Israel in droves. Think about this. For over 100 years, 
200 years almost, they have dug up and, and recorded literally millions of pieces of pottery and inscriptions uh, since those days in the 1830s. So insignificant was Nazareth that it took until 1962 before any archaeological evidence outside the Bible affirmed its existence. Certainly you could see the tell and where it is built, and today Nazareth exists. But even then, in the inscription that was found in 1962, it was found in Caesarea down there right next to the, to the Sea of Galilee, and it was found as a list of Galilean cities where the Jewish people could hide these Yahweh-worshipping priests who had been exiled out of their home in 135 AD by a bunch of pagans who were taking over the city. And the idea here is that where in the world can we hide our priests that nobody would ever find them? Oh yeah, Nazareth, you know, in Galilee. (laughs) We'll hide them there. Nobody knows about that place. Along these lines of geographic obscurity, you'll likely know that the first two apostles to follow Jesus were John and Andrew, and they saw Jesus coming up out of the Jordan, and they were uh, clearly disciples of John the Baptizer, and they followed after Jesus, and Andrew then recruited his brother, who we know as, this is your test, if you don't pass, you don't get to go home today, Peter, you didn't pass, we'll have to order pizza. All right, right? Andrew's brother, known as Peter, and after traveling into Galilee, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. In John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46 says this, Philip then, he goes on, he found Nathanael and said to him, hey, right? You kind of get the idea of this. They're so excited. Hey, come on, man. We found him. And uh, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now pay attention here, folks. Listen to the cultural and obscure disdain Nathaniel answers with for this region and city and Galilee. And Nathaniel said to him, that is Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, oh, come and see. Come and see. Well, beloved, the gospel writer Matthew effectively poses the same statement to all of us who would read his historical account of Jesus of Nazareth. Using fulfilled prophecies throughout his God-inspired gospel, Matthew, like Philip, begs us to come and see who the Messiah is that is painted on the pages of Scripture. Last week, we observed that if Jesus was to be the true Messiah, the King of the Jews, he must be one born in Bethlehem. This week, we'll see that the Messiah not only had to come from Bethlehem, but also out of Egypt, and that there must be great weeping and mourning. And finally, toward the end of the sermon today, in about three hours from now, we will see that the Messiah will be called a disdainful name a Nazarene. Beloved, only God could orchestrate the events of Jesus' childhood to fulfill ancient prophecies regarding four different events in three different geographical locations, begging us to come and see who the Messiah must be. It's important for us to know so often we hear of Jesus that even if people give him the chance of being the one who fulfills nearly over 330 specific prophecies of the Old Testament. They will often, often say, well, he just manipulated. He read the Bible. He knew what he was supposed to do. But again, as I said a couple weeks ago, the events surrounding his birth, he doesn't get to choose those events. And he certainly is not negotiating with the Roman soldiers to cast lots for his clothing and bury him in a rich man's tomb. Matthew 2, beloved, reveals a sovereign God fulfilling prophecy in Jesus' humble beginnings. It is Matthew's uh, goal in, in these two chapters to, one, show Herod, this wicked, horrific king, is not the rightful king, the king of the Jews, and yet, at the same time, to, to in juxtaposition, show Jesus to be that rightful king based on these prophecies that are being fulfilled. Amen? Well, let me say this as we get into this this morning. Um, Some people would always probably 
say that my preaching is too heady or, or maybe, uh, I don't know, causes you to think too much. I don't know. I want you to think this morning. There's some things going on in these prophecies that, that you really need to get down in your, in your mind and in your heart and how we hear the word fulfilled, how Matthew specifically is using that word. I want you to, to just know, just, just kind of put your thinking caps on, they used to say, right? It's good for me and covers my hairdo. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 through 23. You'll remember last week that we that the wise men and the King Herod, and that King Herod had ascertained from the Bible scholars of the day, that was the scribes uh, and the chief priests, where the Messiah was to be born. They were to report back to Herod where they found him. And we learned after finding the Messiah, they worshiped Jesus as a deity. So important. Remember, we, we, we pointed out the fact that, that they could have just, or Matthew could have used the word that, that the Magi just came and bowed down and kind of paid homage, you know, kissed the ring sort of thing. But that is not the word at all that he uses. He uses proskuneo, this idea that you would only worship a deity with that word. And, and so here's these Gentiles showing up to worship the deity, the God-man, little boy at this time, right? Jesus Christ. And verse 12 says this, you can look with me there in your text, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now let's take a look at the first prophecy of the day that the Messiah fulfills. After being born in Bethlehem, somehow the Messiah must also come out of Egypt. There will be mourning and weeping, and he will be called a Nazarene. That's our day in front of us today. Let's see how God orchestrated these events to fulfill those prophecies in Jesus. All right, verse 13. Now, when they had gone, those are the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Can you imagine? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I've had some pretty vibrant dreams. Uh, but I don't think I've had anything like this, right? An angel showing up in my dream, commanding, get up, get moving, right? Right now. It's in the imperative in the Greek, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So we know this from the text that the Magi have already been warned, they're going to be destroyed, right? So they're out of here. And now, whatever, however long it's been, the, this angel is showing up telling, uh, uh, telling Joseph, hey man, get up and get moving. And, and he didn't just kind of say, well, I'll get around to that, <laughs> right? It says in verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Can you imagine? I don't know, you know, in this... In that day and age, and in many places in our world today, if you have more than one pair of clothing, you're, you're considered pretty wealthy. We might think of, you know, well, i got to get my electronic toothbrush, and then I don't want to forget my toothpaste, and all these things. That's not the idea, right? The idea is, is they're grabbing everything they have, this little family, and they are out of there, and they leave for Egypt. Verse 14 says, they remained there until the death of Herod. We'll return to that in just a little bit. It is so cool, isn't it, beloved, that in God's sovereign providence, he provided for this young couple. It is likely that Joseph and Mary are still teenagers. They may be in their very early 20s. They've got this brand new baby that's somewhere under two years of age, probably six months to two years, somewhere in there. And they have are to, to Bethlehem, Joseph has likely already gone to work in most places, and there's still many places like this today, but surely back in those days, you just picked up day labor, and you went to work, and somebody hired you, and you went out, and you worked, and you had enough to feed your family for the day. There were no savings account. You know, Wells Fargo wasn't down the street with their buggies and horses, right, holding on to your stuff or moving, moving your assets around, right? Everything you had is what you had in your hands. Get up, go. Can you imagine? I'm, I'm sure just coming out of the fog of this, this vision, this dream that God is giving 
Joseph in his mind, he might have he thought, how in the world are we going to afford this? Before he sobers up in his mind, right, he's thinking, how will we feed the donkeys? How will, how will we eat? How will we get down to Egypt? Where will we live when we get there? And I don't have any money. And then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, in God's great providence, those kingmakers, those magi, those wise men showed up and they gave of their treasure. And they had gold and they had frankincense and they had myrrh and they hadn't had it for very long, but they certainly, God had in his way moved in such a way that they would have the ability to travel. Amen? Think about that, will you? So often in our own lives, we, we, uh, we do not do what Jesus is going to proclaim here in Matthew chapter 6 here in just, a, in, in, in just probably a few months out before we get to the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, but, but you'll remember, right, that he begins to challenge the disciples and say, why are you worried about your life and what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink? Seek first. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things, your food, your stuff, it will be added to you. How many times I've run into or counseled uh, young men specifically in our church who, who are just looking to climb the ladder of life, get to the next place without stopping to pause and say, is that me seeking first the kingdom? And out of fear, it's, well, we'll move, I'll make more money, it'll be a better place, right? But have they sought first the kingdom? I don't know that Joseph is thinking much about that. They certainly are in such an awkward spot in their lives, uh, being pregnant from the world's view, right? Out of wedlock, <laughs> married out of wedlock. Well, you know, they're, they're trying to proclaim, believe me, I swear, I'm a virgin. <laughs> what do you think? What would you think? your granddaughter showed up and said that. I've never had an intimate relationship in my life, but here I am, pregnant. Uh, We should get you to a mental doctor. Nobody believes them. They're brokenhearted. They're out of their hometown. Nobody helped them when they got down to Bethlehem. They have the baby in a cave. They lay him in a food trough. This is all because of the disdain, the humility of the situation they're in. And now they're headed down to Egypt. Essentially, they are are vagabonds, right? They have no home, nowhere to go, and nothing to go on. But God provided. Beloved, listen, before you run off to that next job and seek that next position and, and want that more money, why don't you pause and say, Seek first the kingdom. Lord, is that where you'd have me to be? And let me give you a clue. If there's no good church, which it's pretty hard to find, I'll be honest, it ain't hard to find a church, but it's pretty hard to find a good church that's teaching what God has said. Before you just run off and think, well, we'll figure that out later, why don't you seek first the kingdom? God has a a way of providing the things that you need when you put him first, amen? So Matthew says that well, uh, that um, there that they are leaving Bethlehem and, and they are uh, effectively, they are refugees to Egypt. And then he goes on to say, uh, this was all to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Through the prophet. Now, I want to pause for a moment because I think we are tempted to do this and And certainly if you watch the History Channel to get your information about where the Bible came from, this will really confuse you. It didn't come from man. It came from the Lord. We speak about it this way, that God inspired the writers of the text. Therefore, because it's inspired, the writers are writing, but it's not necessarily uh, what they want to write at all. It comes through their personality and all those different things, but it is God's very word that is being spoken. And, And Matthew affirms that right here by saying, spoken by who? The Lord. Through who? The prophet. And you'll know if you've been here for any length of time, I often like to, to, to cause you to think about this. Jeremiah, is, he is expressing what it's like to have the Spirit of God come in and say things through him that he does not want to say because he knows it's going to get him murdered like the rest of the prophets. He says, I try to hold it back, 
but it's like fire in my bones. I cannot do it. I must say what God has said. Now, let me tell you something. You are not experiencing that. So much is that the reality that Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he goes on to say of the prophets that as they're writing, that they go back and look into the very things that they had said so they can try and figure out if, if and somehow the Savior is going to come. There's some unawareness, some supernatural Spirit of God that is coming upon the writers, the prophets, to say the things that they're saying, even so supernatural that they go back and say, now what was that? <laughs> That's how Matthew was writing this book. This is how Mark is writing his book. This is how Luke is writing the book. This is how John is writing the book. This is how Paul is scribing out 13 letters of the New Testament, not by his own will, by the Lord through the prophet, Matthew says. Now, this is where I ask you to make sure your thinking cap is on tight here for the next few minutes. You've taken a little time to dig deeper into these prophecies. In chapter 2, you'll know that the study is nothing short of opening a proverbial can of worms. And there is no way that I could spend the rest of our time just talking about this uh, today and even get done. The study lends itself better to a discipleship class, a Sunday school class, seminary classes, etc., etc. However, I want us to be a little aware of the conversation as it is extremely important. <laughs> if you might write that in your notes there next year, extremely important. In verse 15, the Greek word behind our English word to fulfill is the word plerao, plerao to fulfill. A thorough study of Matthew's gospel will reveal that Matthew uses the word in at least five different ways. Will you repeat after me? Five different ways. Let's say it together. Five different ways. Think about that. We do the same thing in English. Use the same word in different contexts for different things. You need to get this down in your mind. So track with me, beloved. Because he uses the word in at least five different ways, every time you see the English words to fulfill, we've just seen them, you should underline them and ask this question, how is Matthew using this word this time? If you do not ask that question, your English mind is going to automatically insert the understanding that something in the past has been predicted by a prophet, and now Jesus has completed it. And in some ways, that's true but we're going to see how it doesn't quite work out that easily. And beloved, sometimes Matthew uses uh, the word plerao or to fulfill in that very way, the very direct predictive prophecy that then comes true. Bethlehem is an example of that. However, it is not always the case. The easiest test to find out how Matthew is using the word is to grab a study Bible or some software, whatever your favorite software is, and find out which Old Testament text Matthew is referring to that has been fulfilled. If it is like last week's prophecy out of Micah 5.2, which states that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, then we know that Jesus completed that predictive prophecy, right? Not really by his own will, but by God's sovereign uh, hand, right? And your study's over. It's like, whew, got away with that one. <laughs> that was easy. How hard is it? Well, let's see. We get to our three Old Testament references today and turn back to the text of the Old Testament, we'll find a much different story. Most people will say that Matthew's quote, out of Egypt I call my son, is coming straight out of the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, they'll have it up on the screen here for you, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt, here it is, I call my son. Did I miss it? Oh no, there it is. Yeah, out of Egypt, I call my son. A quick look at this text reveals a couple of things. First, the text is not a predictive prophecy. Second, it is a recounting of the narrative of God delivering Israel out of the land of Egypt and the people's subsequent worship of idols. So, is it a predictive prophecy? Here's your test. No, you failed, Nathan. Back to school. 
I told you to put to no, right? God, through the prophet, is just recounting what has already happened. It's not a prophecy of something that is to come. It is a statement, a narrative of saying, this is what happened. All right, so we dig in a little deeper. Well, that's not prediction. How's that going to be fulfilled? What is going to work out there? So what is the Spirit of God doing through Matthew the Apostle? Effectively, what Matthew is communicating is like God delivered his people. Is that like God delivered out of his people? Once again, he will do the same thing with Jesus. This is what he's saying. God did it once and delivered his people out of Egypt, and he will once again, in Jesus' coming out of Egypt, deliver his people. It is somewhat of a typology. Please hear me out. Just because the Spirit of God is inspiring Matthew to do this with the Old Testament does not give us the right to use the Old Testament in whatever way suits our fancy. Let me say that again. Because God is doing this through the inspiring of Matthew in the Old Testament does not give us the right to use the Old Testament in whatever way suits our fancy. Are you tracking with me? (laughs) The Spirit of God is burning in the bones of Matthew as he is writing these things out. He is using, in a typological way, Hosea 11.1. That does not mean that you and I can just go, well, whatever fanciful thing we can come up with in the Old Testament must be true. That is not a license for us to interpret Scripture this way. It is how God is using Matthew to say, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Are you tracking with me? It is somewhat separate, yet tied to the idea of Hosea 11.1. Now, if you want my personal opinion, I I think the prophecy is more out of of Numbers chapter 24 and, and, and the obscurity of that false prophet, Balaam. But we'll have to talk about that on a different day. First Peter I mentioned this already, tells us that even the prophets were looking into their own prophecies. And I've got to imagine that after Matthew and the other writers are sitting down, they're reading. They're reading these things. And and we see that in in Peter when he refers to the Apostle Paul, when he calls Paul's uh, writings Scripture. And he says, those things are hard sometimes to understand. And wicked men twist them like they do the rest of Scripture. Let's not twist the Old Testament to make it say what we want. If Matthew, being inspired by the the Spirit of God, is saying and, and finding a type or some kind of symbol in the Old Testament, well, that is the Spirit of God doing it. Not Matthew after a late night and pizza. Amen? So how is it, beloved, that Matthew in chapter 2 is inspired by the Holy Spirit and teaches that the Messiah... Um, or, beloved, it is that he is inspired by the Holy Spirit and he teaches that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a predictive Old Testament prophecy from Micah 5.2. And yet he would come out of Egypt, a typological prophecy using Hosea 11.1. So both are already present. And not only did the Messiah fulfill those things, but Matthew also speaks of a great weeping and mourning and that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very angry. That's a fun word to do a study in the Greek with. He became very angry. It reminded me uh, of why uh, that that James is going to say in chapter 2 that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, right? And slow to what? Anger. You ever notice that in your own life? That's usually how it works. Uh, My mouth gets to talking before my head gets to thinking, and pretty soon I say things I should have never said. Right? That's the process. Herod, a totally wicked man. We've if you want to learn more about that, just go back a couple weeks on the podcast and you can learn more about it. But this is the man who has three of his sons killed and his favorite wife killed. One of his sons just five days before he dies, so he could make sure that Archelaus ends up on the throne. I'll just murder that one. 
so I can get the one that I want. Even after I'm dead, I'll try and control this situation. This is Herod. Angry, very enraged, it says, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now, I told you earlier that I would reference the death of Herod back in verse 15, and, and most scholars believe that this happens in 4 B.C., and so we can do the math. He orders that all the babies around Bethlehem and in Bethlehem that are males, they are murdered, what, from two years and younger, right? They're taken out, so we can kind of assume, at least, who knows how rational uh, he is being. Maybe he's just said, well, they told me six months ago, but I'm going to make sure every one of those kids dies. So he says, two years, and not just in Bethlehem, any of the surrounding regions. Can you imagine going through that? It was inexcusable wickedness. It brings us to the reality of evil in this world. And we often ask, since God is good and all-powerful, why won't he stop the evil? Well, friends, there's really no easy answer to that question. I don't do this lightly, but I think it's an important thing to do at times. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this as Moses is getting ready to enter the land and he recounts the fact that Israel has been called to follow the law on one hand. And he says, if you follow it, you'll get blessing. But since you won't, you're going to be cursed. And that dynamic, in that context, is where Deuteronomy 29, 29 lands. And it's almost as if Moses is realizing, and however God is inspiring him, this is impossible to understand. How God, an infinite God, acts and, and, and works inside of a finite humanity. It's a little hard to come up with that answer. So Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And if you're a student of the Scripture, you'll know that this law is the first five books of your Bible. The Torah, it literally means instructions. The law, this is how to live. And what has been revealed to us in that Old Testament law is that God himself cursed man and why does evil exist and why would Jesus be saved and at the same time uh, likely 20, 30 children be murdered at the hands of a wicked man? We could say very simply because of uh, this death is because of Adam's sin. Therefore, the proof that every human has sinned is that every man is condemned to die. Every man is condemned to die. If Jesus tarries, every single one of you is already condemned to death. And why? Theologically think with me. Because you have sinned. You need to let that settle on your soul. The proof that you have sinned is in the fact that you will die. God told them in the garden, don't do it lest you die. Lest you die. Why is there evil in the world? They did it. They ate it. And death came to all men. So this is why that the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 will refer to Jesus as the second Adam, the second one, the second man who would come on this earth who did not have indwelling sin as he was born because of the virgin birth. And he will come and he will be tempted, as Romans or as Hebrews 10 says, in every way that you and I are tempted, in every way that Adam was tempted back in the garden, that Jesus will come and he will feel the heat of that temptation. That heat is so heavy that when he is in the garden uh, at Gethsemane, he is sweating like great drops of blood. Why? I, I conjecture here is that he understands that he's God and he could just say, no. But in his humanness, he says, yes, I'll take that. I'll take that weight. I'll take your sin, Nathan. I'll, I'll take your sin, Christy. I'll take your sin, Bowmans. And I'll take it to the cross. And it's not easy. 
but I'll do it on behalf of you. Why is there evil in the world, beloved? Evil exists because man disobeyed God and the proof that this disobedience and the fact that you have sinned is that you will die. God made us for eternity to walk with us, to be with us. So it is, beloved, that evil exists not because it, um, uh, not for any other reason than God did what he said he would do. And that is, allow them to die. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus made this promise. This would be to us very clearly. In the world, you have tribulation. You have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. So we walk through the difficulties of this life. We, we experience this, our own sin and how it destroys us. We experience the sin of others and how it destroys us and, and works on us. And Jesus says, yep, that's the way it's going to be. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have turbulation. Oh, take heart. I've overcome the world. Amen. Take heart. Because of the murder of the children, the Holy Spirit moves Matthew to pin verse 17 saying this, then what had been spoken through, the, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, beloved, it is Matthew's purpose here to show how a sovereign God is working providentially to glorify himself through the humble circumstances of Jesus' coming. Born to a virgin, moved, gets kicked out of the country, has no money, is coming out of Egypt, is humble. It's lowly, because I know that you have all do this, and you always do what your pastor says. You've already underlined the word fulfilled in verse 17, right? You already did it, because I asked you to do that, because when Matthew uses the word fulfill, he uses it in at least five different ways. See, you took your thinking caps off. You're already thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. Stop, I should not have said that. My mind immediately went to macaroni and cheese, chicken strips. It's the most American meal ever, right? All right, I'm trying to get to heaven sooner than y'all. You're probably going to have salad. (laughs) All right, where was I? Yes, you've underlined fulfilled. And you have already asked, I wonder where this quote from the Old Testament is coming from. And because you're so smart, you'll know that it's coming out of Jeremiah 31.15. A quick study of Jeremiah 31.15 reveals that the Lord is speaking to his people through Jeremiah, telling them that after Babylon horrifically besieges and takes over Jerusalem, that the remainder of the living will uh, stage and pass through Ramah, which is five miles north of Jerusalem. Notice it is not in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is five miles south. Ramah is five miles north. And they will stage and they will move through and the people will be weeping on their way to Babylon. There will be great weeping and there will be great mourning because of the tragic events of the war. Now, beloved, you can read through your Old Testament and you can see the horrific things that happen when a city, a walled city, gets besieged. Do you understand why an army does that? Think about it. You lock up the gates. You see it on, on, uh, in Hollywood films all the time, right? And the, the gate is the weak spot, and they're always trying to pound in the gate because that makes for great drama. But the reality is this. These giant armies just came and camped outside, and they made sure you had no food and no water coming into that city. And guess what? You're going to get hungry, and you're going to get thirsty. And that's what besieging looks like. Starving people eating their own children, Isaiah would say. Debating and casting lots to find out what mother would eat their other children first. That's all in your scriptures about besieging. And when Jerusalem finally gives up, there is massive mourning, massive weeping going on as they're being transported Thousands, if not millions, have died, right? And they are being transported, forced out of their city to go up to Babylon. 
what kind of weeping, what kind of mourning will be happening in Bethlehem, the kind of weeping, the kind of mourning that was going on in Ramah. And that is what Matthew is trying to do. He is not saying it's a fulfilled prophecy in the sense of that was predicted. He's saying like that event, like those events, there will be great weeping, there will be great mourning. And these mothers lose their children. The beloved, once again, Matthew being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture is typologically saying, like the weeping and mourning that happened in Ramah was the weeping and mourning of those who lost their baby boys to the horrific barbary of Herod. So how it is, beloved, Matthew 2 teaches that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. One, a predicted prophecy that fulfills it perfectly. He would also come out of Egypt, a typological prophecy. There would also be weeping and mourning that the Spirit uh, drives Matthew to write down that would be like the weeping and mourning in Ramah. Let's take a look. What happens next as we wrap up? Matthew continues in verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take your child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother. And came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. I don't know how humbling it must be to have to return home when certainly they left because of the census, but would have been escaping the shame of being pregnant and trying to tell people that, believe me, I'm a virgin. <laughs> Leaving their home, not finding anybody to rest with when they, when they get to their hometown of, of Bethlehem, of their family's lineage anyway, from David. Now they're coming back up and, and likely thinking, well, maybe if you're Joseph, you're thinking, well, I'll pick up my day labor from my old job. But somehow he finds out, and then the, the Lord, through the dream, warns him. Archelaus is reigning, and it's like, man, everybody knows that guy is worse than his father. And what would it be like to say, well, let's move on back to Bethlehem. We'll, we'll have the only two-year-old boy there. You thought about that for a second? Man. That's a little tough. Maybe we'll just keep on going north. Back to our other hometown where people will despise us and make fun of us and tell us that we lied and that it's a bastard child. The humility of Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Let me say, and I'll conjecture just a little bit, think about it with me, will you? Um, I'm not so sure that when Joseph and Mary got home that they continued on with that tale. My guess is if I was them, I'd probably just kind of pick up the corner of the rug and sweep all that stuff under. My guess is with Archelaus reigning and wanting to murder anyone who would take his, his uh, throne, they're not going around saying, here's the boy who survived. Here's the real king of the Jews. My guess is they've just kind of swept all that underneath the rug and they quit talking about it. And I'm not so sure based on, on how Jesus' brothers uh, respond to him in John chapter 7 that they're even overly aware of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. It may very well be that they just zipped it closed in order to save Jesus' life. It's probably what I would have done. Let's just make believe like that never happened. Matthew writes this, 
And they move back to Nazareth. This is to fulfill. You've already underlined it. You've already highlighted it. You've already thought about it. What was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Again, you'll want to underline that, fulfill, and ask of your Old Testament, what is Matthew referring to? And the quick answer, there is no reference to this in your text. Again, remember that Matthew is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some would point out that not everything that the prophets said was written down, and that's certainly a possibility that he is referring to the prophets, plural. We don't really know. So how is Matthew using the word plerao to fulfill in English? Since there is no predictive prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, fulfill cannot mean the completion of that predicted prophecy that we have. Here it is best to understand Matthew as using fulfill by pulling together the many prophecies proclaiming the obscurity and the humility of the Messiah. Track with me. In John 1.46, Philip found Nathanael, and Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew is effectively pointing out that the same cultural outcast nature of the one is who is from Nazareth. He is pointing it out. He is a Nazarene. He is the one who, who is disdained and despised and rejected. We might think best of understanding Matthew in our modern vernacular by saying that Jesus was an Oki. You don't hear that very often anymore, right? Maybe, maybe you do. I don't know. Or he was a hillbilly or he's some kind of backwards guy. That's the idea that, that he's a Nazarene. He's one who will be despised and rejected coming from some insignificant place in the world that that they even have to say, Mark has, you you know, Nazareth up in Galilee. One commenter, commentator, Don Carson, summed it up nicely by saying this, quote, Jesus the Nazarene carried with it overtones of contempt and that when Christians were referred to in Acts chapter 20 verse 4, 24 verse 5, as the Nazarene sect, the expression was meant to hurt their feelings. You tracking with me? It's not just that he's from there. It's meant, hey, you oaky. Hey, you idiot. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And he continued by saying that, quote, we are to understand the prophets as pointing to the one That is Jesus who would be despised and rejected. And Jesus is fulfilling this by his connection with the obscurity of disdainful Nazareth. So next time you're reading through your New Testament, pause for just a moment and understand this this proclamation, Jesus of Nazareth, is not just a nice little thing. The idea is, can you believe it? That guy says he's the son of David. It's not Jesus of Bethlehem where he, was, where he was born. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's disdainful. It fulfills Isaiah 53. It fulfills the idea of Psalm 22 and 49. It's a fulfillment of the kind of person that he would be viewed as. So friends, there was a short time you'll know in American history, and thank you for hanging in there with me. We're just about done, where it was okay to be associated with Jesus of Nazareth and his teaching. But you don't have to be very culturally aware to know that that is not going to be a popular thing. Not right now, and it certainly is not going to be as we move into the future. The days are over of having a Christian worldview and a Christian moral system and a Christian way of thinking uh, and praying for your enemies and, and uh, doing all those things would be culturally accepted. Of knowing that there's actually a truth. Believing that there is truth in the Word of God. That it is the absolute truth. That it, did not, it was not inspired by a man who decided to write down a few things to trick some people in the future. If you believe that, that this is inspired and errant Word of God, not our Word, you're in a minority. And if you live it out, 
you're going to get lonely pretty quick, and church is going to feel like a family that's needed, not something I like to go to on Sunday. To truly walk and live as Jesus walked, proclaiming his name, you will likely be treated the same way genuine Christians have been treated throughout history with disdain, like a Nazarene. But just remember Jesus asked the question, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? The answer, of course, it's no good. It's no good. It may not be looked upon highly to have a moral system. It may not be uh, considered something you ought to do. It may not, you might seem barbaric and, and like an oaky, believe in this old Bible, right? What good will it do for you to gain the whole world and in the end, lose your soul? You see, friends, Nathaniel said to Philip, who was in, inviting Nath, uh, 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 Philip to embrace Jesus where Philip was inviting, excuse me, Nathaniel to embrace Jesus as the Savior of the world, he said, Can anything come out of Nazareth that is good? Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. And I thank you for bearing with me this morning, and I want you to understand that it's the point of Matthew. He's saying, Come and see. Come and see the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem. Come and see how. God providentially brought him up out of Egypt and fulfilled prophecy and brought new light to an understanding of that prophecy. Come and see that there was mourning and weeping in Ramah. Come and see that even though he is disdained for his teaching and saying that he is the truth, he in fact is the truth. The Bible says that if you'll confess your sin, that Jesus is Lord, if you'll turn from it, right? Confess him as Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What a message, right? Just recognize who you really are, a sinner. Just recognize that the Bible, maybe you disagree with it, but the Bible says that the fact that you're going to die means that you're a sinner. Recognize that this is Sunday morning, and why does the Christian church always celebrated and worshiped on Sunday morning? Because death could not hold him down. Amen? We go from worshiping on a Friday and a Saturday to worshiping on a Sunday, and every time we show up on Sunday morning, it is proclaiming, He is alive, He is alive, He is alive. He rose from the dead. Death did not hold Him down. The resurrection of Christ is the promise that you also will be resurrected. Some resurrected to life eternal and others to hell. What will you do? Will you come and see Jesus? Let's pray.